At 5.06 p.m. on Saturday, March 16th, the official university Twitter account put out a message. U of M emergency alert. Mason Hall. Run, hide, fight. At 5.17 p.m., DPSS tweeted out about unconfirmed reports of an active shooter. On the Diag, students attending a vigil for the victims of the New Zealand massacre had to flee as police cars sped onto their space and screamed, run. Um, and I think out of the entire ordeal, that is the part that will stick with me the most, hearing people scream, run. We realize that this this is a reality for us too. It's not just for Parkland, it's not just for um, the AME Church, for Pittsburgh, for New Zealand. It could be a reality for us as well. Like, like the first thought that went through my head was like, we were getting shot at because we were Muslim and supporting Muslims. For more than two hours, students sheltered and barricaded themselves in their homes and in buildings across campus listening to the police scanner and checking their social media accounts for any update. Rumors of casualties, injuries, and a man in a trench coat spread like wildfire. So when the shooting in New Zealand happened, everybody is on edge um, and uh, we might say that primed, basically, to see stuff happening. Um, So we can think about how when, you know, everybody's kind of jittery like that, the likelihood of us sort of overreacting to information or kind of picking up wrong information and letting and having it spread is way easier because basically our thresholds for seeing it and spreading it um, are much lowered at that point in time. By the evening, the university confirmed that there was no threat to student safety, nor had there been any threat during the duration of the entire incident. Several individuals popping balloons in Mason Hall were the primary culprits for the false alarm. I'm your host, Katherine Newhan. How does communication between a university and its students break down during an emergency? On this week's episode of The Daily Weekly, we will talk to students who were present at the New Zealand vigil and an expert in information cascades to understand just how Saturday's incidents came to be. My name is Lynette Shaw. I am a fellow in the Michigan Society of Fellows that is being housed at the Center for the Study of Complex Systems. So I work on uh, specifically complex systems, uh, ideas and models as they apply to social systems. So everything from uh, cultural dynamics, how what's in our head becomes culture and back and forth. I also do a lot on cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and how those came to have value. Lynette describes how panic spreads in communities. So one is just the spread of information through a social system just on its own. And you can think about how when we have new alert systems, for instance, that is something that is beneficial because it can get a a piece of information out very widely, very quickly, which is something really new kind of for us as a species, honestly. Um, That said, um, another part of this also has to do with a concept we call emotional contagion. So just like you can think about people catching the flu, uh, if you see something uh, that gives you an emotional reaction and then you're around others who are also prone to having that emotional reaction, there's ability for that to spread and kind of feedback on it. So panics are interesting because they're part information, part emotion. 
So, um, and especially in a, like I said, the connectivity of our society is way higher than it's ever been before. So the ability for a piece of information that has a lot of emotional uh, content to it to spread extremely fast and then for people to start reacting to it offline, talking to each other is really big. Lynette then explains information cascades and how her area of research directly correlates to the events that happened on Saturday. So information cascades is specifically one of the most prominent models that's been used to understand uh, kind of these unexpected sort of sometimes undesirable uh, social processes. So information cascades uh, was a model that was a mathematical model that was presented a couple decades ago, and it really focuses on how... um, social systems can pick up pieces of information that might not actually be correct. So the basic idea behind an information cascade is that you have a series of people who are kind of paying attention to information that they have personally, but they also are seeing what everybody else seems to believe, right? So this is basically a situation where, if you think about it, we all walk around with incomplete understanding of what's going on. We only get little signals personally. We rely a lot on looking at other people and and seeing what they think is going on at the same time. And so an information cascade is basically defined as starting when people stop paying attention to like their own kind of assessment of what's going on and start just relying on what it looks like everybody else thinks is going on. This can be tricky uh, when incorrect information happens, right? So basically, um, information cascades have been used to explain things like fads, sometimes panics, et cetera, where um, a piece of information gets taken up. Everybody stops paying attention to their own feedbacks that they're getting and just pay attention to what everybody else is looking at. Um, And sometimes those are hard to kind of break. Um, But once they do, uh, such as like the corrective text that was sent, that was actually really important, right, to kind of uh, correct everybody's information simultaneously and let them know what's actually going on. Lynette then explains emotional contagions, which describe how an emotion spreads within a community. Okay, but you can, so you can think about contagion just as in like um, viruses, right? So like the flu. The flu, the reason that it spreads so much is because it's highly contagious, right? It just sits around and can be picked up. So people, um, you know, not just in social systems, but in all sorts of system, um, uh, systems, we've thought about this more general notion of contagion. So you can think basically about how, um, you know, this uh, there's something called the SIR model that's used in epidemiology that has been applied to social processes too. And what that basically means is I, as an individual, am susceptible or I'm infected or I'm like recovering, right? And so you can model emotions like that, right? So like if I am more prone to feeling panic, I'm very susceptible. And then once I'm infected, I can then infect other people who are next to me. And so like that's the key. You can think of like the emotion itself like a flu virus that's going through the social system, right? And that's a big key part of the panics. Um, also, though, information flows alongside that and, like, the likelihood that we're going to pass on. So it would be interesting to look at, like, the likelihood of passing around on incorrect information when you are in a panic state versus a calm state. That would be an interesting thing to study. How do you think that the run or the hide, run, fight message part with the student body. Yeah, I mean, again, this is such a hard thing, right? Because we want people to take it seriously, right? We want to give people the information they need in that moment to be able to 
you know, survive, right? Um, but again, you know, using those commands, like imperative statements, like that, you know, your amygdala just like kind of freaks out and just starts going, right? Like you're, you're higher. I mean, like this is the part of the cognition of it. Like when you're panicked, like your higher functioning shuts down, right? Because all of your blood flows like going over into the other parts of your brain, which are like, you need to survive, right? So you go into fight or flight, right? Um, so that's on the one side. On the other side, um, you know, kind of being a having a long paragraph saying we have had reports and we are not sure but like that that's not necessarily going to get people to move and react quickly like they need to so I think part of this is also us kind of learning from this experience um maybe a little bit more proactive communication on kind of planning on you know what steps we take just as like you know not we don't need drills that I'm not saying that but like knowing in advance okay if this happens we we know to like kind of run fight hide <laughs> we don't see that in a text the first time that being mm-hmm. the advice. Lynette then goes into what the university should do in terms of communication with students after a traumatic event like this. Yeah so I think that I think that um, you know kind of the best you know just going back just going back to the original model of like the information cascade, they talk about the breaking of cascades and how public information that's given to everybody is very powerful in that, right? So like on the one hand, you know, uh, there are a lot of priorities that they, the, the university is having to juggle a whole bunch of priorities right now. Um, but I think that, again, it's worth kind of taking this moment to kind of clarify what happened. I appreciated getting some updates on what actually happened, but like kind of a more... Um, you know, kind of a more central response that becomes like a focus for discussion might be very useful right now. So and kind of, you know, recognizing that everybody here, um, you know, just basic kind of facilitation of a conversation. It helps if everybody kind of goes in recognizing that we all want to stay safe and have um, a good kind of, you know, student environment as well that's not racked by like fear and panic. So, yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Zaina Syed. I'm a sophomore. I'll be studying public policy next year. Um, And I'm also an assistant news editor with the Michigan Daily. Hi, my name is Yara El-Tawil. I'm a junior studying uh, computer science and BCN and LSA. Both Zaina and Yara attended the New Zealand vigil on Saturday and were forced to run to safety. Yara talks about how she thought the Muslim community was being attacked again people weren't stopping for anyone like they were knocking down the barriers at the hatcher um like snow barriers and everyone was just kind of like running for what for our lives like we thought that we were in extreme danger the response was very poorly coordinated not only in just the alert system um and how we were handled as like the people at the scene and also just like how the the alert systems came out to us as we were sitting there until we started hearing alerts that the shooter was coming to the ugly, um, which we were hearing through, like, people were hearing through the police scanners and um, just kind of, like, group chats, I guess. Um, We didn't take, we didn't know how to take action and, like, where to go. Um, So it kind of shows that, like, the active shooter protocol that we have is just really poorly planned and, like, really poorly spread out to people. Um, And then until like the panic, this like the second panic set in, that's when people started like running and hiding. Yara discusses the message run, hide, fight, and how that played into their fear. 
and I never caught her name, but the lady who worked at the office was like did a very good job. Like she was very well trained. Like she helped put up a barricade and like kept us calm. But at the same time, we were getting like these alerts from the university that were just like run, hide, fight, like not a lot of information. Um, I heard someone say it felt like um, like a PR statement kind of where they were like not telling us a lot of information and not like giving us action and it's opposed or even like safety messages really it just kind of felt like this is happening but everything's fine. Zaina still wants a formal statement from the university on the events that took place on Saturday. And I, I will say also President Schlissel invited um, a few a few people from the Muslim Students Association to breakfast this morning to talk about the incident. So that was nice. We appreciate that. Regarding a formal statement, that would also be nice. As members of the Muslim community, they felt targeted, not just attacked. To go back to, I guess, like the unique role or like the unique like feelings, I think, of a lot of Muslims uh, at the vigil, one of my friends said it best. She said everyone else at the, the vigil felt attacked and scared. We felt targeted. I think at the time, a lot of people thought that they were targeting our vigil and at a very vulnerable moment when we were remembering 50, 49 to 51 people who lost their lives. We felt like it had happened to us again. Um, so I think it was that fundamental loss of safety. They believe this incident speaks to a larger issue in the society that we live in. DPSS and the police department got over 20 calls about there is somebody shooting someone in Mason Hall. The climate that we live in that allows this to happen, so we need to push for gun control, we need to take away platforms from white supremacists who are in positions of authority and have access to social media and have access to um, platforms and being allowed to speak at the university. They believe that there was a lag in communication between the university and its students, which spurred rumors, and that there was not good coordination between DPSS and the Ann Arbor Police Department. We didn't feel like we were getting like a lot of alerts from the university, so we turned to each other and like we were we, like people who were off the scene were listening to like the police scanner and kind of just like talking about what the police were saying. Um, some people were just kind of like guessing, I guess. But, and I mean, I guess it did do a lot to increase the fear that we had, but we didn't have any other sources. We didn't have anything coming from the university. Like, like we were trying, we were tr constantly like checking the news. We were like waiting for the alert texts and stuff. Like the rumors were damaging, but maybe they could have helped people. There was a disconnect between what uh, the Ann Arbor Police Department was saying and what DPSS was saying. So at some point we got an alert that everything was safe. And then at the same time, people were still saying like, no, don't leave yet, don't evacuate. Like you can't go until a policeman comes and like lets you guys out. And so like we were kind of left in like this limbo of like where we didn't know whether it was safe or not. Um, so that was definitely like some sort of disconnect. And I don't know if that has to do that speaks on the modernity or just like the lack of coordination between them. They believe protocol will change and that DPSS needs to be more aware of how students of color perceive their actions, especially in high stress environments. They were tweeting out updates. Um, they did have a, a police reel um, 
and they do have an app that is supposed to send out emergency alerts. I think the issue is like almost no one knows about it and the alert is an opt-in system instead of an opt-out, which means that you can only get the alerts if you sign up for the app, which no one really has done because they didn't know about it, didn't take it seriously, etc. Um, I think that'll change after this, uh, maybe not substantially, but it will change. Um, I think DPSS could also have done a better job about being sensitive to communities of color. Um, I know in Hatcher, they like barged in with like humongous guns, um, and especially for like the black community, uh, that can be very unsettling and jarring um, and terrifying, quite frankly. Although DPSS declined to comment for our episode, they released a statement on the 17th of March that addressed the incident. Their message commends community members and other law enforcement agencies for their cooperation. They also address the reports of slow response times and how miscommunication between them and facility staff leave room for improvement. In their meeting with central student government, DPSS reaffirmed their support for the run-hide-fight protocol in their original tweet, as well as their hope for better communication channels in the future. Because the current emergency notification system is opt-in, DPSS also hosted an event in the lobby of the Shapiro Undergraduate Library to sign students up for their notifications. Although the incident on Saturday was a false alarm, it still greatly shook the student body at the University of Michigan. It made everybody realize how possible it is that an active shooter could be on our campus. For any student listening to this, take care of yourself and know that you're not alone. Here is your weekly roundup. This past Tuesday, investigative journalist Ronan Farrow spoke with reporter Ken Aletta at Rackham Auditorium about the impact of the hashtag MeToo movement. He also discussed his role in exposing famed Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein's history of predatory behavior and sexual assault. Wallace House at the University of Michigan hosted the lecture, which drew more than 600 students, faculty, and Ann Arbor community members. Farrow won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on Weinstein, an award he shared with Jody Cantor and Megan Tony of the New York Times. Daily reporters Sammy Sussman and Nisa Khan introduced Farrow, discussing how his work has influenced their own journalism. Farrow touched on many aspects of his work and beyond, including the willingness of people to come forward with their experiences, the University of Michigan's own policies, as well as the politicization of sexual misconduct claims, specifically in how the allegations against Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh were handled. Despite the rain and cold temperatures last Friday afternoon, approximately 2,500 to 3,000 Ann Arbor community members joined together on the Diag to participate in the global climate strike. The students who gathered in Ann Arbor were among the estimated 1 million students who skipped school to partake in one of the more than 2,000 climate protests that occurred in a total of 125 countries. The participants convened on the Diag, where the event transitioned into a march around Ann Arbor and ended at the Fleming Administrative Building, where climate strike organizers led a seven and a half hour sit-in.
The demonstrators said that they would not leave until the University of Michigan's president, Mark Schlissel, addressed their demand for a one-hour public meeting about the university's plan for climate change and carbon neutrality without screening questions. According to the University of Michigan police, after multiple warnings, 10 individuals chose to remain in the building. The 10 individuals were arrested and given citations for trespassing. Despite the arrests which ended the night, Rackham student Noah Weaverdick said that demonstrations went as well as organizers hoped it would, and that they planned to take further action. Ultimately, he considered Friday's events a victory for demonstrators. Over 1,200 people gathered in the Diag for the Women's March On for Justice early Saturday afternoon. This was held the day after Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's 86th birthday. The theme honored Ginsburg and Women's History Month. The event featured a rally with several speeches from University of Michigan students, community organizers, and others. The Ann Arbor March was organized by college Democrats and progressives at the University of Michigan in conjunction with the Women's March Ann Arbor and Women's March on Washtenaw. At Ann Arbor City Council on Monday, council members voted down the senior affordable housing complex, the Lockwood Development, on grounds of zoning and environmental concerns. Affordable housing activists say that Ann Arbor is in desperate need of affordable housing for not only seniors, but students as well. They say that these excuses for not breaking ground on affordable housing are used often. Another resolution passed was the confirmation of all members of the Independent Community Police Oversight Commission. This commission of 11 nominees was controversial because of the lack of transparency of board members choosing participants. Community members were heckling council members as they gave their votes, calling for a release of the criteria used to choose members and questions about why specific people were chosen to be on the commission. The commission has been an ongoing concern in city council meetings since January of 2018, when the Human Rights Commission called for increased accountability and transparency from the Ann Arbor Police Department. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of The Daily Weekly. Again, I'm your host, Catherine Newhan. This episode was produced by audio engineer Ryan Cox, executive producer Catherine Newhan, producers John Coonan, Joshua Sadikoff, Sonia Vogel, and Ivan Yao. Special thanks to content creators Julia Maddy and Shreya Dada.